Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The path of the righteous is like the dawn which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. That's Proverbs 4.18. That is a very precious promise from the Word of God. If you are righteous through faith in Christ, you can have this promise that your life, not always outwardly, inwardly, will shine brighter and brighter until the full day. You will be transformed, Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. Again, Paul also acknowledges our outer man is decaying every day. So in this world, you will have trouble. We're not saying that your bank account will be like the light of the day, more and more till the full day. We're not saying that about your health. We're not saying that about your circumstances. Scripture is promising you this, however, when it comes to the most essential part of you, the most important part, your heart, your inward person. Brighter and brighter. We all, Paul says, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord right now by faith, we are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. So last week, your inner person was a little bit darker than it is this week when you walk in here. One degree of glory, and now you're another degree of glory. It's very small at a time. So sometimes it's imperceptible. Sometimes you don't notice it, but Scripture promises it, that over the course of your life, this is what's happening at all times if you're in Christ. That's a beautiful promise. But we have to acknowledge that at the same time that we love this promise, many of us hate this promise, and this is why. Why doesn't it say that the path of the righteous is like full day brightness now. (laughs) Why is it like the dawning of the light? Why is it a little bit at a time? Why don't we read in scripture that we all beholding Christ are being transformed into that same image right now, done. No degrees of glory. We don't want degrees of glory. We want the glory right now. And if you're of a temperament that's a little less patient, you feel this especially. You look at your own life, your own progress in the faith, your own habits, and you want them to be so much more than they are. And why is it taking so long to get there? Because your path is like the light of the day, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and then full brightness. But that can be frustrating. What we're talking about here is in theology called progressive sanctification. 
Progressive because it's progressing forward as you live your life. And sanctification just means you become more holy, more like Christ. So this is progressive sanctification and it takes time. It's not an immediate thing. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, when you by faith perceived him there bleeding out his life upon the cross, realized his love for you and your own evil vermini sinfulness in your heart, that he would die for you and you by faith, received the work of Christ, in that moment, something immediate happened, whenever that was for you. Something immediate, not progressive, but immediate. You were made right with God. Again, using theology, we like to call this positional righteousness. And all we mean by that is that you received in that moment a righteousness, a right standing with God, and it has to do with your position in God's sight. That will never change. That's the beauty of the gospel. But that's not like the end of the Christian life as soon as you trust in Jesus. It's the beginning. So you receive a positional righteousness, and now what? Now for the rest of your life, by your own efforts and labors, with God working with it, you are growing into what we call a practical righteousness. This means like you actually love people <laughs> and you serve them and you wash their feet. And like Mike said, you forgive people when they wrong you. You treat your family well. You treat each other well. You pray and get in the word and are more disciplined, more self-control. We call that a practical righteousness. So you see, your positional righteousness, when you trust in Christ, it's as good as it'll ever get. It's the very righteousness of Christ given to you. That's why the gospel's good news. But also, from that moment on for the rest of your life, you are now with your own labors. You don't labor for your positional righteousness. That's all Jesus. You receive that by faith. But now it's God working with your labors you are growing in what we call a practical righteousness. That is the doctrine of progressive sanctification. It just means, if you want it more simply, that the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn, which grows brighter and brighter until the full day. God could have declared you righteous back then and made you righteous at the same time. And what a relief that would have been, but he hasn't. He wants this to be, for whatever all his purposes may be, a sort of romance in the truest sense, not like love romance, but like a great story. That's what your life is. You're not just left to now live and do whatever you want till you die and go to heaven. You are living out the greatest coming-of-age novel or movie or what have you ever. It's your life. You are developing over time. Just like any movie you enjoy and that character develops, that's your life. That's what God wants your life to be and that's what's happening in your life as a Christian. Now we don't always think this way. We may be frustrated that it's taking time or we might be lethargic and not really trying to progress or we might have forgotten our positional righteousness. Whatever it is, for you, God has a text and it is Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Because here, Paul is adamant. You have to think this way. That you are progressively being sanctified. And that that is what the Christian life is about. 
think this way. And if Paul himself can say this, Paul who had received heavenly utterances, literally had visions of Jesus, ascended to the third heaven and proclaimed the gospel so that it spread like wildfire in the ancient Mediterranean world. Paul who wrote most of our New Testament, if he can say even for himself, this is how I think, I'm still growing, I'm in process, then how much more us, (laughs) the non-Pauls right here, how much more for us do we need to think this way about our own Christian walk? It's a process. It's a process. So Paul was just talking last week, you remember about the end of that process, his hope attaining the resurrection. And now we begin here in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but... I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let's hold true to what we have attained. That old Anglican, and dear to many of our hearts, John Newton, author of the famous Amazing Grace, our favorite American hymn, he himself was at one time a cruel headmaster of a slave galley in England, was converted by the grace of God and became a very faithful pastor. And you may have heard this quote, which summarizes everything we're going to say in our sermon today, everything Paul wants to communicate Here's John Newton, quote, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So along these two lines of thought, we're going to follow Paul in this text. He's saying just the same thing. That is, first, Paul wants you to know that even for himself, and this is an example for you, he doesn't think of himself as having arrived. He's not perfect. He hasn't arrived as a Christian, and neither have you. But secondly, he's doing everything he can to arrive. He hasn't arrived, but he's going He's not standing, he's not returning, he's going, he's pressing on. So those are the two headings of this sermon, if you will. First, Paul hasn't arrived, but secondly, he's going. Since verse 15 reads, let those of us who are mature think this way, it means that if 
you and I don't think the way this text tells us to right now, as we will see, we are not mature. And none of you want to be not mature, okay? So let's think the way this text gives us. And in that same verse, when he continues by saying, and if in anything you think otherwise, because we don't automatically think like this. Paul's optimistic for you. God will reveal this also to you. And that means as we enter now into this text, we are coming with a, a divine awareness. An awareness that for us to overcome old habits and think like this is going to require the very work of God revealing it. And that's just what we're trusting he will do in these next few minutes. So let's look to the text then. First, Paul sets forward this attitude of the Christian life. The first part of it being that he and you, he has not arrived. Not that I've already obtained this. That's how he begins. Or I'm already perfect. And look at the beginning of the next verse. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul was a failure. He failed. Do you know that? Do you know Paul failed? Paul was a great Christian man. Many successes in his life. But if we're to believe this text, many failures too. Paul is saying, I've not yet reached perfection. That's what he's saying. Notice the this in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this. And what is that you remember from last week? He had been talking about knowing Christ, which is something he presently does, just like you as a Christian. But he framed knowing Christ as something present, but also something future. That his whole life was not just about knowing Christ, I'm done, but it was about striving to know Christ more until that day at the very end when I stand before him and I see him as he is and I'm transformed to be like him, what Paul calls attaining the resurrection from the dead. The full knowledge of Christ. So Paul last week was sort of crescendoing and it was exciting. I was excited about it. But now he wants to give a caveat and say, listen, listen, that is exciting. So be excited about that sort of a life. Set those high ideals that you will know Christ, whatever it costs you. But while you're doing that, you need to keep this in mind. You're not there yet. Some of you are idealists and idealists in every area of life and probably carried that over into your Christian life. And you have high ideals for what you want your walk with Christ to be. Listen, keep those ideals and give them to the rest of us. We don't want to have low ideals. Keep those goals. But you need this text especially because Paul begins by saying, but listen, remember, you're not there yet. You haven't yet arrived He hasn't yet arrived. The perfect has not yet come. The partial, even in Paul, is not yet done away with. I am not already perfect. I don't know him fully yet. That's what Paul's saying. Or to say it another way here, I don't consider that I have made it my own. That's the next verse, 13. What he means there is it's like Paul is running a race. We'll see in a second. He's running a race of the Christian life. And maybe down the stretch, he can see the finish line. And all of the people are there. Everyone's cheering him on. A great cloud of witnesses. And he's running with all his might. And he's excited about the finish line. And he was just telling us about the finish line last time. The resurrection from the dead. But now he pauses and says, but look, I'm not there yet. 
I'm still running the last leg of the race. I haven't stopped to celebrate and catch my breath and take pictures with friends. I'm still running. I'm not there. So be excited about it, but remember, you're not there yet. I haven't made it my own yet, he says. I haven't, in other words, overtaken it, you could say. I haven't overtaken that finish line, grabbed it for myself, completed my race, my battle here. And we can be grateful that Paul, of all people, is the one writing this to us. Because, look, maybe if you have a, a Catholic background, it might be difficult for you to think of, for example, the Apostle Peter as perfect. You may think of the Apostle Peter as, oh, certainly he was imperfect. When you read of him in the New Testament, he's the disciple always putting his foot in his mouth. He's the one who jumps out of the boat to walk to Jesus and then begins to sink. He's the one who is so misguided at times that Jesus literally turns around to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. He's the one who three times denies Jesus. Unless you think it was only during Jesus' lifetime Peter had problems, Paul in his letter to the Galatians recounts a time where Peter, after the resurrection, as a leader of the church, started to compromise on the gospel a little bit, on how he treated Gentile believers, and Paul had to rebuke Peter. So, it might be a little easier for us to think, ah, oh, yeah, Peter, impetuous Peter. Of course he had his problems. But you and me, do we think that way of Paul? <laughs> Paul, and I don't want to diminish Paul at all, Paul was perhaps the greatest Christian who ever lived. And yet Paul's writing this text. Paul's the one setting himself as the example saying, I'm not there yet. Don't you dare think I'm there yet. Paul is not saying that he's caught up in grave sins and he's sleeping around and he's committing wire fraud. It's not these grave moral sins, but Paul is saying, I'm not there yet. I still need to suffer more. I still need to be conformed to the image of Christ. I'm not yet perfect. This is Paul. If anyone ever arrived as a Christian, Paul arrived. And Paul says, I didn't arrive. And that means that you have not arrived either. He's saying, I've not obtained it. I've not been perfected. I've not made it my own. Paul is just agreeing with a lot of other people in the Bible, like Jesus' own eminent half-brother James, who said, we all stumble in many ways. Paul is agreeing with wise Solomon, who said, there is no one who does not sin. And at another place, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Paul is agreeing with the beloved Apostle John, who said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There is not one part of Scripture that condones sin, that approves of sin, that says it's not a big deal. Scripture treats sin as a very big deal. But at the same time, Scripture is very honest, more honest than we are often. And it says, listen, all have sinned. And even as Christians, there's this remaining corruption. Everyone in this room, sorry to give you away, you've all sinned. It is a part of the Christian life. We hate it with a passion. We murder, literally, Paul says, we murder our remaining corruption by the Spirit. We put it to death. We hate it. It's our sworn enemy. We will never make peace with it. But we acknowledge the reality. It's there. Look, you lived with yourself this week, didn't you? 
You know it's there. What are you going to do about that? I think one clear application of what Paul is saying here that should shape our thinking is Paul was a leader in the church. How should you think about leaders in the church today? None of us, so there's four elders here, none of us are even close to the coattails of Paul, okay? So much further down than Paul. And Paul is saying, this is how you should think of me. James also writes, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So those who lead pastors, teachers, preachers should be held to a higher level of accountability than everyone else. They're the leaders, right? So I'm not denying that. You should hold me and the other elders to a higher level of accountability. We see this in 1 Timothy and Titus when Paul is saying, the only people who can become a pastor, teacher, preacher have to meet these requirements. Pastors who preach can disqualify themselves, I believe, from the pastoral ministry. And this would be by great sins. A pastor who, or preacher, even a popular one, who is unfaithful to his wife, he can be absolutely forgiven by God, 100%. But I don't believe that that means he should enter up into a pulpit again. I think he's disqualified himself for the sake of the honor of the gospel. So that's not to say he's not forgiven. But that's simply to say there are consequences when those who are supposed to be held to a higher standard engage in great sin. So that's, listen, that's not what I'm saying here in this application. Paul's not saying that about himself. Like, oh, I sin all the time. He's not saying that. But Paul is telling you, even as a leader in the church, don't expect me to be perfect yet. And this is true of, unfortunately, the leaders here and the leaders in every single church you will ever go to, the preachers and the teachers that you listen to online, everywhere. Because James, when he wrote, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Do you know what the very next verse immediately afterwards says? For we all stumble in many ways. Just like Paul, pastors today have not yet arrived. I've not yet arrived. You know that. That's obvious. And we're not saying this so that leaders can have a shield and can sin and say, oh, can't criticize me because, you know, we all struggle. No, actually, please criticize me. I mean that genuinely. I'm not joking. Please criticize me and the elders and in terms of helping us constructively to grow. We're with you side by side wanting to grow. So if you see glaring problems, come and tell us. And the Lord will use that and help us to grow. So this is, again, not a shield to protect any leaders. And it's not defending especially grave sins that leaders commit. We have to give an account. But we're like Paul. Paul who said that he fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. But the greatest wild beasts that Paul ever fought with were not in Ephesus. They were in his own heart. As he was striving and struggling and straining in the race. And he wasn't there yet. The reason that I'm saying this is not to defend any leaders who have issues, because leaders have issues and need to be dealt with in different ways. I'm saying this actually to protect you. Because it's not uncommon to enter into a church or to have your favorite teachers and preachers online, those who are held to a high standard and who lead you in the Lord, and you should honor that and be grateful for that. But there is a temptation for any human leader who's teaching the Bible, there's a temptation for you to idolize this person. 
to put them up on a pedestal is usually the way that we say it, but it's where you, because you've been so helped by them, begin to think of them as almost on a different level, a different plane than this mortal sphere. They're up above us. That's not true. (laughs) Higher standard, yes. But if you idolize your leaders in the Lord, whether that's here locally or somewhere else, you're going to become hurt and disillusioned because you are never meant to treat any, anyone as a God except God himself. Jesus says, you have one teacher, and that's Jesus. <laughs> you have one father, and that's God. So be benefited by teachers, but you do have to protect yourself. If Paul's not perfect, how much more the other teachers that you listen to? Not grave moral sins, but I'm talking about weakness, that low burn, failure, incompetence, ineptness, wrong statements. You should expect that to happen. Think about those Bible teachers who help you today. Maybe some of you, even like myself, have been really helped by Bible teachers like John MacArthur or John Piper or the late R.C. Sproul or many, many others. Paul Tripp is another one. Good. Or you have teachers from the past who've been a great benefit to you. Think about Martin Luther or John Calvin or John Owen or the Puritans. Love the Puritans. Or Charles Spurgeon, my favorite. You've been benefited by them. Wonderful. Continue to be. But Paul points at himself and then he points at all them. There's Piper and MacArthur and Tripp and points over here at Calvin and Owen and the Puritans and everybody. Okay. Paul points at himself and points at them, points at us four elders here, any leader that you've ever had in your life. And he just says, I want you to know this. Not that. They, we, have already obtained this or are already perfect. We've not made it our own. We're still running just like you. Higher standard, but not perfect. What this should produce in you toward any leaders in the Lord is a sort of humble, fearful respect. So don't go around just blasting leaders because they're bad. A humble respect for leaders, but one that comes with a dose of realism. So that if one of those leaders you've put up high on a pedestal someday falls, we pray it never would be, that you wouldn't be destroyed in your faith. Paul says, none of us, no human, no matter how trustworthy, no matter how helpful they've been, no human has obtained this yet. None of them are perfect yet. May God help us with all teachers that we all benefit from to be able to trace those, the goodness that's coming from the teacher up to its source. Don't just stop on the teacher. Forget that. Trace it up to its source and say with Moses in his famous song in Deuteronomy, the rock, his work is perfect. No one else's. That's what Paul says of himself. Paul says he's not yet arrived and he's a great teacher. None of us have arrived yet. Now, talking this much may have made some of you uncomfortable when we talk about Christian sinning. It might make you uncomfortable because you start to feel like, well, if everybody's imperfect and all Christians even are sinning, then aren't you going to give people a license to go do whatever they want and just say, well, nobody's perfect. Not if you read this text, okay? Because you don't get that conclusion from Paul. Paul acknowledges we've not yet arrived, 
But then immediately he adds something else. But we are trying to. We are, in other words, going. And so in our sermon now, we turn from not yet arrived to going. Verse 12, again, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but, you see that word? Transition here. But I press on to make it my own. Because Christ, Jesus, has made me his own. Paul is going to say that though we're not yet arrived, we are all striving, going. And we're going with two things. We're going with fervor, progressively being sanctified. It's with fervor and it's with focus. So that's what you can take away from what he's going to say here. So if we begin with this fervor that Paul is talking about. Not just going, but it's with a fervor. You begin to see this in the reason he gives for going. He's striving to make it his own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The logical order of what Paul's saying here is life or death, heaven or hell. Some of you right now may be trying with all of your might to be good enough, to progress enough, To get Jesus to love you. And you won't say it like that because you know there's a banner. Shouldn't say it like that. But some of you practically feel that way. If you can get your life together, get it nicely wrapped up, get the wild ducks of your life in some sort of a row, then when Jesus looks upon you, ah, then he'll be willing to own you as his own. Yeah, that's my child in whom I'm well pleased. Yes, yes, yes. But not until you get to that point is that the logic of Paul in this passage. Paul says, I press on. I'm not lazy in my Christian walk. I am laboring to make the goal my own. Why? Why, Paul? It's exhausting. You ever tried to be holy? It's hard. Why, Paul? Well, here's why. Because already in the past, Christ Jesus reached down and made me his own. This is what produces ultimately the fervor of the Christian life. And look, you can have many motivations for trying to put off sin. Like if you struggle with alcohol or anger issues as a husband and a father, one of your motivations should be your poor family. And that's fine. That can be a motivation. Or if you struggle with gossiping, one of your motivations should be the unity of the church, which you may potentially destroy by gossiping. So, Another motivation in the Bible is the reward that Christ is going to give us. Great. So there can be a complex number of motivations for you to be holy. But at the very root, underneath everything else, if you're really going to go in the Christian life, this has to be the core motivation. The love of Christ compels us. It's not so that Christ will make me his own. Please. It's because Christ already has made me his own. Therefore, with fervor, I strive forward. The love of Christ, in other words, it's not like you're on a boat in the ocean and you see the love of Christ as another ship sailing away from you. And you are with all your might paddling to get to that ship. Please, love of Christ. And you're working hard and breaking a sweat. No. The love of Christ is like you in a sailboat. And it's the wind behind you that 
fills the sails and propels you forward. It's already there. You're not going to catch it. You already have it. Christ already made Paul his own. And therefore, Paul presses on. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is why you and I can talk very frankly about the fact that Christians sin. Because we're not trying to hold a carrot out in front of you like, I'll be good and Jesus will love you. It's Jesus already loves you, Christian. So when you wake up in the morning, that's what motivates you. That today you want to love him more. We love because he first loved us. That's part of what forms the fervor with which Paul is straining toward holiness in his own life. You can also see this fervor when we continue in verses 13 and 14. Because Paul is now going to use the image of a race. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice this line. It's the name of the sermon. It's the one you probably remember the most. This one thing I do. This is why for Paul there's an immense fervor in his striving after holiness. Because he does not think, well, what is my life? My life is that I go to work or I go to school and I have a job and I go on vacations and I have some friendships and I start a family and I raise my children, and I foster my marriage, and I get promotions, and I prepare for retirement, and I look forward to moving here and doing this, and if I have time on the side, I also need to make a little bit of time to be holy. (laughs) Over here, maybe I've got a few hours in my week, and I'll work on being holy those few hours of my week. (laughs) That is not how Paul thinks about holiness. This one thing I do, one thing, that means Paul was doing a lot of things. He was even making tents. (laughs) But within everything else Paul was doing, it was all a part of this one great program, this one campaign of his life. Everything was a subset of this primary focus. This is what produced the fervor in here. It was in everything that I do. If you're raising your children... And if you're fostering your marriage, and if you're considering a new job or a promotion, and if you're dealing with your finances and balancing the books and looking online, and if you're making a big purchase, if you're buying a new house, if you're forming new relationships, if you're moving to a new community, if you're coming here, if you're changing the tire on your car, under all of that, there's all of that, really on top of all of that, while you're doing that, That forms a part of this one thing. You becoming more like Christ. So when you're out there on the side of the road and your tire popped and you're trying to change it and it starts to rain and it's getting cold and you're trying to change it and the rust has caused it to adhere to it so now it won't come off and there you are by yourself growing increasingly frustrated What is that situation about? Happened to me, by the way. But what is that situation about? That situation is not about the tire. That situation is not about me on the side of the road. It's not about the rain. It's not about it being cold. It's not about God being mean and trying to make me have a miserable day. 
That situation's about the one thing I do in my life. That situation's designed to help me be like Christ. Because I want to be frustrated. But Christ died on a cross in much worse circumstances and said, Father, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. And I'm not like that yet. It's not that I've obtained this. It's not that I'm already perfect. But I tell you, one thing I do, whatever else happens in my life, it's meant to push me into this one thing. The one thing he gives really is this. I press on. I press on. That word press on is the exact same word used in the Bible for persecution because it has the idea of chasing someone down. It's, if anything, it's not passive. It's aggressive. It's almost a little frightening. You are pushing on. Nothing lethargic about your Christian life. You have a fervor. It's included in it is this. Number one, forgetting what lies behind me. Here you have the author of Hebrews saying the same thing. Let's lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let's run with endurance. You could say fervor, the race that's set before us looking to Jesus. If you want to run with fervor, and I hope you do, if you want to really grow, you can't be carrying, he says, your heavy backpack of the past. Forgetting what lies behind All of us are tempted. You may be here hearing this message, and I'm getting a little animated, so maybe you're getting a little excited. Okay, we're going to grow. But then you remember, that's not the sort of person you are. You've got conflict stuff. You've got a past. If only I knew your history, what you've done in the past, how you've tried to reform, and you've just done worse. And there are other people who, when they think of you, they hate you maybe. Maybe you had a falling out with people. As time goes on, this builds up all of the things that are behind you. And so you want to run like Lot's wife, trying to run from Sodom, but she just has to cast that last longing look back at the city. And that's how you feel looking back. And it's holding you back because it's like a great weight on your shoulders, the past. Maybe the past for you is the primary thing holding you back from the future, from growing in Christ. Paul is aware of that temptation. That's why he literally says, That if he's pressing on, what that involves is forgetting what lies behind. Whereas Hebrews says, let's cast it off. If you have something from your past that needs to be made right, you frauded someone out of a bunch of money, then this isn't forget what lies behind. (laughs) This is go make that right. Like Zacchaeus, fourfold, whatever. Go make that right. But this isn't talking about that. This is talking about There's nothing really to make right. This is just, you know, when you're a child and you look at the world with this sort of innocence and eagerness and excitement, but as you get older, you have falling outs with people, you have conflicts that happen, you have situations that aren't as cut and dry as you would like, and you're not even sure if you did all the right things, but you think you did, but did you? And so there grows this sort of fuzzy, abstract sense that you're a pretty crummy Christian overall. And you've messed things up quite a lot of times and there are many witnesses who will give the amen to that testimony and you begin to feel that about yourself. That's just the sort of Christian you are. There are like the really solid Christians and then there's you and everybody knows you're not one of those. What is that? That's not even a thing, right? It's not an object. I can't come take it out of your life and you know, throw it over there. That's just you thinking about the past. 
The past isn't even happening, you know. It's gone. It happened. But there it is like a great weight upon you, like rust that over time compounds and grows, corrodes out a pipe, and then that pipe is almost all rust. And some of you might feel that way in your Christian walk when you think about what's happened in the past. Some of you know about Pastor Viers. We have several people up at the Biblical Counseling Training Conference in Lafayette right now. Pastor Viers is the pastor up there, and he has a very helpful book called Putting Your Past in Its Place, and some of you have read it. I highly recommend if you're struggling with your past. But he likes to break your past into these two parts and say you have an innocent past and you have a guilty past, and they can both be a problem in living the Christian life. Your innocent past is things in the past that have happened to you, and you're innocent in the matter. Some of you have experienced abuse. Some of you have been mistreated horribly by others, had fallings out where it wasn't your fault. But it's still there on your back. It's still like a crushing weight. You're not running the race with endurance. You're crawling the race barely because this is maybe overtaking your life. You may need to confide this in a friend. You might need to go get some biblical counseling. But if this is an innocent past where you've been wronged, but now it's hindering you from pressing on, you need to deal with that. You can't live your whole life this way. Secondly, there's a guilty past. And this is probably more, Paul's probably thinking here of his religious Jewish background. Forget that. And he's probably also thinking of his guilty past where he worked hard to kill Christians. And Paul, when he wakes up in the morning, to spread the gospel, has to consciously decide, I'm not going to let the guilt of what I've done and what I've been crush me today. If you have a guilty past where you've been the one doing wrong and that holds on to you and pulls you back from pressing on, you have to give that to the Lord as well. We're in process, so it's not always an easy thing. But you can't just settle and say, that's just how I am. I just have baggage, and that's just how I am. That's fine if that's how you are, but that's not how you're going to be. You are pressing on and forgetting whatever it is that lies behind you that wants to stop you. You will be more holy. Viers talks about how our responses to our past then make up another part of our past. Maybe someone wronged you, innocent past, and then you responded sinfully, and now it's a guilty past. So you have to deal with all of that. He calls them buckets that you have to empty. And you might have come in here with many buckets that are holding you back from the Christian life. And in some of those cases, you need to make something right. You need to confess your sin. In others, you need to give it to the Lord. You might need counseling or just a good friend. Whatever you need to do, do it. Don't wait and do it. Just, you need to do it. Because this is a race. This isn't like, ah, we cross the line, we cross the line. Paul's saying, this is a race. And you've got to shed the weights that you have. This is the fervor with which we press on. There's also a focus here, and they kind of blend together. But because it's not just forgetting what lies behind, but also straining toward what lies ahead. And what lies ahead? Verse 14, a goal. The goal. And what is the goal that lies ahead for Paul? The prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know this same analogy of running from 1 Corinthians 9 when Paul says, don't you know in a race all the runners run? 
but only one receives the prize. So you need to run so that you may obtain it. And all these runners are running for something perishable, a little trophy, a little wreath, and it will perish. But you are running for something greater than that. And Paul says, so I don't run aimlessly. Oh, that God would allow that to be rightly written on our tombstones. He or she did not run aimlessly. There is a focus about Paul's striving toward holiness. Paul, toward the end of his race, when he was on that last leg and could literally see the finish line, was about to have his head removed, wrote to his young friend Timothy and he said, Henceforth there is, right there, right there I see it, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which Jesus Christ will give to me on that day. And he won't just give it to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Are you in the race? Are you running right now? Are you putting off the weights that are behind you? Are you straining forward to what lies ahead of you? Those of you who've run track or cross country or run recreationally or what have you, or in a 5K, you know that feeling. When you're running, at least for me, when I'm running, I have to try not to think about the pain in my legs, the cramp that's forming in my side, and everything I have to do today. Because if I think of that, I get distracted and I don't keep running. What do you have to focus on? Some people focus on just maybe a tree over there. I just got to get to that tree. And then you get there and then you focus on the next thing. You have to focus ahead of you. That's what Paul's saying. Is that what you're doing in your Christian life right now? Are you looking like this at your past? Forget it. Are you straining ahead of you toward the prize that's set before you, which is for Christ to welcome you into his presence and say, you did a good job. Well done, my good and my faithful servant. Now come, now enter into your rest. Now take the wreath. Here, throw this towel around you. Wipe off your sweat. Take a breather. You're here. You finish the race. That's our goal. The feeling of exhilaration that some runners have when they get to that last leg and there is the finish line and they kick it, you know? You have a kick, you have a kick and so you just start speeding up and accelerating and at least for me in that moment, I'm not thinking of anything else. I'm thinking of the finish line. That's all you can think of in that much pain. So you're running. That is what your Christian life has to be. If it's not that, Paul says, you wanna be mature? Think like that. And if not, God has to reveal that to you. Is that what your Christian life is right now, Christian? Are you running? Can you describe your striving after holiness and killing your sin habits as a laboring and a running that causes you to be out of breath, spiritually speaking? Or are you standing? Or worst of all, and this is Paul's final warning in mine at the end of our text, only let us hold true to what we have attained. At the very least, Please, don't go backwards. <laughs> That's useless. Don't turn around and run the wrong way on the track. We've attained to this. At least hold that true. But much better, strive forward in holiness. Now's the time. If you've been just jogging along, can't do that anymore. Now is the time to race. Maybe you're just settling into your marriage. You kind of interact not so great, but it's just you get by. No, no, stop. Look, you can't do that. You can't do that the rest of your marriage and you can't do that the rest of your life. You blow up on people, but that's just how you are. No, 
That's not how you will be. You have to tell yourself, no, that's not how you will be. You're shy and embarrassed and you don't share the gospel because you don't want to talk to people or offend them. It doesn't matter. That's fine if that's how you are, okay? But that's not how you're going to be. That's not how you're going to be. Because you are running this race. And the next step for you might be sharing the gospel with your coworker. And look, you're just going to have to do it. <laughs> and pray for God's help. And it's going to be scary. But you know what? Nobody who runs a race well does it in an easy way. It's not like you're relaxing and eating grapes and being fanned. You're running. You're straining and you're striving. Paul says that's what you have to do. Christ is like the high school coach of the track meet there on the side, and he's yelling for you, go, 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 keep going, it's right there, you see the prize, keep going, we're going to be dead sooner than we'd like to think, and then the prize, or Christ will come down, and then the prize, so don't get tired, keep running, keep straining, run forward, and if you're in a season where you feel like you're just limping, and that's all you can give, Paul says, okay, just don't go backward, then just limp, push through the cramp, push through this season, and then get running again. That is the Christian life, progressive sanctification. And may God help us all to think this way about it. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, it's to you that we offer this prayer. Because we have been told in your holy word that we can put to death the deeds of the flesh, but that we can only do it by the Spirit. That's you. It's not the arm of flesh that succeeds. It's not merely by our might. It's us extending, expending effort. But it's you taking that effort and making it successful, causing the seed to grow, causing the sin to die. Lord, my prayer for us as a body of believers who are here in this one time and place is though we enjoy, we enjoy when more people hear your word and when we grow by number, we enjoy that. But it's not our goal. That's not our aim. That's not what we're running for. What we want is for us who are here, not just to be Christians, but to be Christians and to kill what is fleshly, and to thrive spiritually, and to flourish 100-fold harvest in each of our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. God, we will not rest until we have this. Like Jacob wrestling, we say, we will not let you go until you bless us. With this holiness in our own lives, I pray that through your word and your mighty spirit this very week, you would break chains, genuinely, of habits that have been long fostered and formed, and that they would be shattered by the power of your gospel, that you, Spirit of God, would show your power. You blow wherever you will, so blow through our lives and like a mighty wind, Lord, devastate the towers of our sin and false thinking. Tear down those ramparts and help us to run this race and to become more holy so that others may see our good works and our good lives and give glory not to us but to our Father who is in heaven. 
Please, Spirit, do this for the glory of Jesus Christ who sent you. It's in his name we pray. 